Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, it says here that you have $700 in your checking account. I just paid my credit card bill. And $957 in savings. Do you have any... Other income besides the column? No. What about your assets outside the bank? Uh, property? Stocks? Bonds? No. No, no. I'm sorry, Miss Bradshaw, but you are not a desirable candidate for a loan. Y'all and welcome to Unladylike. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And for this installment of Ask Unladylike, we're tackling advice requests on money, honey. And by we, I mean us and our very special guest who has literally helped keep a roof over our heads, Helen No. Yeah, um, Caroline, you and I have name-checked Helen a number of times on Unladylike because she is our financial planner. And also just our legit lifesaver. Oh, for sure. But Kristen, tell the people how you found Helen. How did I find Helen? It took a lot of Googling, okay? So way back when you and I decided to quit our day jobs and start working for ourselves, I knew I needed help managing my money, both for myself and also for our impending business. And I also really wanted a woman in charge of my finances, which turned out to be much easier said than done because I started Googling and every female financial planner I came across was part of just a firm owned by like a white dude. And finally, I Googled my way to Helen and her company. And at least at that point, Helen was the only woman-owned financial planning firm in Atlanta And Caroline, I will never forget my first call with Helen because I was so nervous, like just full of financial imposter syndrome. And she immediately sensed it and was like, don't worry, that's what I'm here for. What I do is I help you tell you how to manage your debt, where to invest, how to invest, what types of accounts to open, how to plan for your retirement, how to save for your kids, um, college education or whatever. But my background is is specifically in investment management. So stocks, bonds, all of the sexy stuff. So sexy. (laughs) Today, Helen is laying out some of the major money pits women face, how to navigate saving and spending, 
and what it means to ethically invest. First, though, we're going to dig in with Helen about what goes on behind closed doors as a financial planner and how gender shows up when we're talking about money. Kristen, I'm feeling richer in knowledge already. Let's get to it. Okay, Helen, so in your practice, you work with a whole bunch of women, and I'm curious, what are some of the most common concerns you see? Just in general is a lack of confidence in where they are actually spending their money. And it doesn't matter if you're a client who's making like $50,000 a year, or I have clients making $700,000 a year as lawyers, and they still come to us asking the same questions, am I spending it right? Mm can I spend money on this? Can I afford this? Um, The male clients that do come in, they just ask the same question, but in a more confident manner. Like, oh, um, what stocks do I buy, Helen? Look at my portfolio. And I'm like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And then eventually, (laughs) the truth comes out of like, yeah, I'm not really sure what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. Right. But but they, they, they come in a different way than my female clients do who say, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm just not sure. They're, to me, I think they're more straight up about it than the males are. I feel like the, the, the men who come to us protect their ego a little bit more, but it's the same problem underneath the onion. Well, are there any kinds of like money secrets that people have the hardest time spilling? <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean by money secrets? I mean, that could be anything like outrageous student loan debt or I don't know, maybe speaking from personal experience, like weed budgets. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. When they come into my office, I force them to tell me everything because I do a complete audit of their spending, of their cash. I'm like, oh, why did you pull this cash out? Why is it $1,000 this month but not next month? What was it for? Um, and, yeah, they. I have clients coming in. Oh, yeah, I, I want a specific weed budget. I have one client I'm thinking of, you know, um, she used to spend thousands of dollars on just a wine budget um, monthly. I mean, I'm not there to judge where you want to spend on your vices. I'm there to make sure you're not screwing yourself up. I don't give a shit if you need a weed budget. But but yeah, typically, I, I'm not shocked or surprised by anything. Like, you, you mentioned student loans. Like, I'm so used to seeing 300000 200000 150000 Like, that's standard to me. But that's because I see it every single day. So it's not shocking to me. Um, you know, one problem that I see that's very common is people would go on these extreme financial diets where they're like, oh, I'm going to cut out weed for two months or three months and see how it goes. But that's really depriving yourself of the one thing that has been keeping you sane. Whereas, hey, if you want to decrease something, let's talk about what your actual non-negotiables are. Mm. But, you know, um, where I get shocked the most is actually relationship conversations that happen with me. Um, That's where I kind of lose it with people. (laughs) Lose it? What do you mean? Oh, my God. I'll just give you an example. Like, I just remember this this one guy, he came in, and he wanted his wife to be on the call, too. And he's like, Helen, tell my wife 
that she's not going to get any part of the house when we sell it, like the proceeds, because this is like his third wife or whatever. And I told him straight out, I was like, that is not my problem to solve. You need to talk to a couples counselor who can help you resolve that communication issue you have. I'm not there like banter between you and your wife about who gets what. I'm here to talk about, you know, technical stuff like taxes and how you can budget for your wife and stuff like that and how your wife can protect herself from you too from a financial perspective. Um, you know, cuz I was representing her too, but I'm not here to argue for you and be the mediator. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that, that's mm-hmm. when I kind of lose it and, and put the client in place and fire them because they're not, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're not using my services um, in, in an appropriate manner. Let me just put it that way. Okay. You, you mentioned the wife needing to protect herself too. How do you help single women prepare for financial changes before they maybe get married? I love getting single women clients because I can get them from the front end. (laughs) I can train them from the front end. I'm like, look, I ask them during the interview before they even become a client. I I ask them, are you single? Do you have a boyfriend? How serious are you? I mean, I get really intimate with it because I always feel like I have to protect them or or I want to protect them as much as possible, whether they like it or not. Um, And I talk to them about what their debt is, like how far along in the conversation do you have with your boyfriend or soon-to-be husband um, about what his assets are? Um, Are you expecting any inheritance? Is he expecting any inheritances or any debts that you know about? So really, I I get to the core of like what types of communication and the extent of it do you actually have with with your partner? And um, let me talk to you a little bit more about how to protect your own assets in case the relationship doesn't work out. I know that sounds like doomsday when you haven't even walked down the aisle yet, but if you have a very high earning potential and you plan to make a lot of money and accumulate a lot of money, I want you to protect that because like personally in my life, I I had a boyfriend who passed away when I was 17, so at a very young age, I learned that not all relationships are going to be forever. And it sounds like a cynical perspective, but that is the risk that you get into in any relationship, you know, because people do change in relationships. And finances is, the, if not the number one reason, that couples have the most difficulty talking about. And so when I work with single women particularly, I I really try to enforce them to have those difficult or challenging conversations on the upfront. Um, And even if they are married, (laughs) I plant some seeds about getting family attorney to get like wills and all that stuff and having them update their um, beneficiaries on their accounts. And, you know, I had one client, she didn't want her husband to have anything because he was already, quote unquote, wealthy in her eyes. And so she wanted to list um, her brother as the beneficiary of her um, IRA, her traditional IRA. And did you know that when you have a retirement account like a, a 401k, technically you're supposed to list your spouse and the wife has to ask the husband to sign off that they are not getting that money, that they are no longer a beneficiary and that they will not be the, the default beneficiary as the spouse. 
That is on legal paper. Mm. That still exists today. It's really fascinating. So all of these legal things happen that I think a lot of not just women, but individuals don't even realize that they're stepping into from a legal aspect and the commitment that they are actually getting themselves into, not just, oh, how are we going to open a joint checking account? It goes above and beyond that. (laughs) Kristen, you look scared. Don't be. So, so what I was getting to is like for my married folks, you know, if, if you're worried and you still want some self-protection, I would encourage to have some conversation around getting what's called a post-nuptial agreement. That means that you're getting a nuptial agreement um, during the marriage that you can agree upon that these are the set financial terms that you have together. I mean, if you look at celebrities, they do it all the time because their finances change all the time. So my my biggest thing when it comes to women and money and marriage is how can I protect my assets? What about when folks are getting divorced? Like, what kinds of challenges do you see? If you are thinking about getting a divorce, this would be a great time and opportunity for you to seek your own independent education around money. It is very sad and depressing to me that I see a lot of women, they come out, the divorce is already done, and they're sitting there crying because they don't even know the questions to ask me. And that, it's just so sad. And I say, you know, can I see the divorce agreement? Um, What are you getting? They just know what they're getting. And again, their problem is, I don't know what to do with this money now, because I wasn't ever in charge of it when we were married. So that is the biggest challenge with my divorced clients who are women when they come to us. Usually if it's the male, it's statistically they're the ones who who have had control over the money, you know, throughout the relationship. But when women come to me for the financial aspect of things, again, they they just have no idea where to even begin allocating their dollars and are so scared that they're going to lose every single dime and they feel as though they're starting over. They, they are technically starting over, but I try to give them a glimpse of, you know what, you are starting over and that's a good thing because that gives you an opportunity to build your own foundation now. So let's start from there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Helen dives into some questions about saving, spending, and ethical investing from listeners and the Unladylike team. There's even a nerve-wracking question from me. Ooh, can't wait to hear it. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with financial advisor Helen No. Helen, before we get into some listener questions, we have a couple of budgeting and spending questions from the team. So let's start with a question from our editor, Gianna. Here's Gianna. Hi, I'm someone who's never kept a budget, formally at least, and I'm not sure if I need to or where to start. What would you say is the value of a budget if you're not overspending in the first place? I'm living below my means and it feels kind of unnatural and maybe unnecessary to put a cap on my spending in certain categories. For example, with groceries, I just buy what I like, but I don't have a set monthly dollar amount for groceries. And I also feel unsure about budgeting when it comes to even more frivolous stuff like clothing and dining out. So how can I determine the right amount of money to spend each month? Do I need a budget? Wow, that was a lot of questions in one question. Um, (laughs) So the first question is, what is the value of a budget if you're not already overspending? If you're not already overspending, I don't think it's necessary to do a budget and check on it every single time. Because it sounds like you already are disciplined in managing your cash flow. Personally, I I only do a budget once a year where it's most valuable is just to have a look back, a historical look back of, of what your trends are and what your habits are. And if there are any opportunities for you to change any of those habits, again, going back to asking questions like, what are some of my non-negotiables? Are there any large expenses this year or projects that I want to spend money on, like I have a general idea of how much I spend in in different categories. Um, But why I personally do a budget um, is really to budget for larger expenses throughout the year. Like this year, I we just moved into a new house, which means I'm going to be spending some money to renovate some parts of it. So like I knew I was going to move this year. I knew that I was going to need to drop at least two grand to fix my office. The value of the budget is so that I won't blow that one-time budget of, of spending, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Because like the day-to-day stuff, you should have a pretty general idea and cadence of what money is actually going in and out. What I don't like about budgeting questions is when they ask me, like, what apps do you use? Helen? I'm like, I hate all those fucking apps, okay? <laughs> because it guilt trips me. Like, during Christmas, especially when I, you know, go overboard with hosting and, and like, I way overspend in groceries. But that's because it's Christmas. And then this stupid app keeps telling me I'm, like, $500 over my grocery budget. Like, I'm pissed at the app. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um... Gianna asked about frivolous spending, and I, Helen, I have a question about frivolous spending. This is this is from me. You uh-huh. are very familiar with my finances. So here's my question. 
unless <laughs> I've had a car emergency, which <laughs> you've witnessed or, you know, been paying my quarterly taxes, my highest category of spending is always food and beverage, unless it is Sephora during the months when I have to restock my moisturizer. Um, so basically, <laughs> this boils down to me spending on friend hangouts and skincare, which feels so frivolous when I look at my monthly statements, and I always feel so guilty. So what is the best way to strike a balance and get rid of some of my spending guilt at the same time? All right, Caroline, I'm stepping into my advisor role here for you, dear. Uh, (laughs) uh, First of all, are you able to make your rent? Yes. Are you able to pay your cell phone bill and all the other utilities that you have? Yes. Are you able to keep yourself alive? Yes, so far. (laughs) So far, yes. So what's the problem? Why do you feel frivolous? Well, I feel frivolous because I'm not, I think, socking away as much as I wish I could Mm -hmm. every month. And so when I see the, like, the food and Bev showing up, it's like, oh, God, I could have, like, had one less this or that, you know? Um, Do you yeah. think that you would – so let, let, let's just say you and I were hanging out as buddies, and you – we dropped $300 at a dinner. Would you feel better seeing that $300 in your savings account? Well, I mean, it depends because I guess where I'm looking to strike a balance is that on the one hand, like one of the most important things to me is time with friends. And like Mm -hmm. I love Mm -hmm. to spend time with friends over a meal. So (laughs) on the one hand, that's like not $300 wasted, although I don't know the last time I spent $300 (laughs) on a meal. But um, but on the other hand, it's like, well, no, but I should be putting that money in savings. Yeah, I mean, uh, really the core of your question is, I think, is how do I overcome the guilt of treating myself versus quote-unquote being responsible or what seemingly is responsible, you know, such as making sure my rent is paid, socking some money away. Um, My technical advice for that is you're not technically feeling guilty that you're going out with your friends. You have an opportunity cost guilt, which and your opportunity cost is being able to put away money for the future. You, you could put all of your money away and save, but then you'd be miserable because you're not going out with your friends and and enjoying life. Um, you know, so so just going back to like a technical piece of advice is to treat your savings as a necessary expense versus a discretionary expense that comes mm-hmm. after you spend with your friends. So I would treat it as important as rent. And you can start off small, like putting away $10, $15 a week just to see how that feels. You can do what I like to call the matching technique for a short term and then evaluate how you feel about it. Is, all right, if I go out and spend $50 with my friends, then I'm going to match that and put $50 away this week into my investment account or savings account, for example. 
But I think the guilt thing, it uh, it will constantly be there. I mean, another thing to do is just go out and go make some more money, too, and then you won't have to feel guilty about it. <laughs> That's <Perfect>. my approach. <laughs> I'm like, let me just go make some more money. Let me go get some more clients or do some more stuff with my business so I can make more money and not feel guilty about it. I like that approach better <laughs> than having to feel like I'm sacrificing my life, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you, Helen. <laughs> well, speaking of going out and making more money, I feel like this is a related question. This comes from a listener named Sierra. She writes, I have a few stocks in my name left to me for my grandparents. Is there a way to ethically invest in the stock market and make money? Is it worth my time to learn about how all this works and be more active in what's happening with this stock that I have and try to grow it? So when you're asking ethically, it's not technically ethically investing because you're not unethically investing. You're just investing in companies that are not necessarily aligned with your values, right? I have some clients where I ask them that question, too, is like, do you want to invest in Amazon? And even though you are totally against their practices, some of them are very hardcore about it. And they're like, no, I don't want to invest in Amazon. I don't want to invest in any mutual funds that invest in Amazon either, you know, because you can indirectly own Amazon and not even know it. If you dig deep in in all of the investments that you own, in the mutual funds and ETFs that you own in your uh, accounts, you know, like in your 401k, you can a lot of them on Facebook, Microsoft, like all these big tech firms, big oil. Um, but if you want to, quote unquote, ethically invest or, you know, you're more into um, supporting the environment and, 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 and invest in ESG funds, you know, uh, then then there are funds out there that that's their particular target and they exclude companies that have quote unquote bad practices in how they run their businesses. Um, so you can look for those online, just Google ESG funds or um, socially responsible investments. Now, on the other coin, <laughs> I have clients where I ask the same question, oh, do you want to invest in big oil? Um, you know, I'm thinking of one particular client. She's like all about green energy and all this stuff. <laughs> so she's like, I just want to make money, but then take that money and do something good with it. So that's a different approach. At the end of the day, for me, I just educate the clients and give them options on what they can do. Uh, again, I'm not there to tell them where they cannot spend their money um, or what they cannot invest in. I tell them the risk, right? But, you know, th th there's definitely two approaches to uh, that quote-unquote ethical question. Uh, so really, it's, it's a values-based question. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, how do you financially plan for single parenting? Plus, Helen gives us her most unladylike money advice. Stick around. It's just to steal it. Just steal it all.
We're back with listener questions for our financial advisor, Helen No. All right. This next question is from Yulia about saving as a single person. So Yulia writes, I'm a grad student and have never spent more than a month in a relationship. To be honest, one of my major concerns is the financial hardship inherent in living as a single woman. The wage gap is certainly persistent, and most women I know need both their own and their spouse's income to make ends meet. Are there any resources you would recommend for educating myself about how to manage financial life as a single woman beyond the basic just keeping track of one's budget, especially in a situation where my job isn't the type of work that offers an automatic 401k? I would agree with with her that, you know, as a single individual, it, the process of accumulating true wealth uh, can be a lot longer um, depending on your earning potential as an individual. I'm not exactly sure if that's a genderized thing, but 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 I know that there definitely is is a wage gap, um, you know, in terms of race and and your gender. Um, however, to combat that and and going above and beyond just, Oh, creating an Excel spreadsheet and tracking your budget and downloading Mint.com to track your spending, above and beyond that is just really understanding investing, right? Because saving is is just the process of putting what you made into a particular account. That's transferring money from uh, your checking account into a savings account. But think above and beyond that. How can I transfer money uh, from my checking account into an investment account? You're getting a little bit more advanced in terms of how can I capitalize on the money that I've already made, right? Because the savings account, truthfully, these days, you don't even earn shit in there. So where else can you put the money so that your money can work harder for you? So, so that's where I would start if you are really trying to build wealth, accumulate wealth, get rich, however you want to call it. Um, is to invest your money because that would be the only other avenue I can think of um, in which you can do well for yourself. Besides going out and negotiating different salaries and all that stuff, that's just the income portion of managing your finances is making sure that money is actually coming in. The second part is how do I make my money make more money? And the only way to do that is to invest. Even if you aren't making or have a ton of money, you can still get started investing? Yeah, you can invest with $2. So it's not... Uh... Y'all, Helen is looking at me like I am crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, it's been put in our heads that you need to have a lot of money or a shit ton of money to invest, but that's not necessarily true. It's absolutely not true. Um, you can start with just $50. So at some point, you, you start accumulating your emergency savings funds, and so that's a cushion. But above and beyond that, like how much of an emergency savings do you need? You know, is it $5,000, $10,000? When you hit that $10,000 mark, let's just say, for an example, above and beyond that, why don't you just go invest some of that money? Like, when will you ever actually need to write a $10,000 check besides your car breaks down or some medical issue, whatever? 
um, you know, I, I would even split it up. So even if you're able to save a hundred bucks, maybe twenty five percent of it goes into an investment account, and then the other seventy five goes into your savings account. You're still technically saving money. It's just how are you making different portions of that hundred dollars work for you? So that's a very completely different way of looking at it. Because again, people think saving is. Uh, it's just a mechanism of transferring money back and forth. You're not actually growing anything. Mm -hmm. So we have a big question. Oh, Lord. (laughs) And you mentioned, like, how often are you going to have to write a $10,000 check? Well, listener Rachel has a question about the cost of solo parenting. Mm. She says, I'm... 30 and single and have been thinking more and more about adopting, but can't justify a child on my salary. How can I know if I could support myself and a child on my own? The technical answer to that, and you're probably not going to like this answer, that is a, a big budget item to, I hate to use the word budget, but to plan for. And I would sit down, pen and paper, whatever you use to add up the actual total cost. I will say that you should already know what it costs for you to live and be happy. That's a really important element of financial planning for yourself is the total cost of my living and my lifestyle and what makes me happy right? And and keep me sane. On top of that, when you add a child into the mix, I know this because I have my own kid, but we do a lot of this calculation for clients too, is it, it is not cheap to have a kid. It is not cheap to adopt either. So that is like child care costs plus adoption costs is a lot of money. And I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you or anything. I, it definitely is possible, but you do need to realize the realities of raising and and caring and, and I don't I don't know what your 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 listeners um particular situation is um in terms of of her income and and what assets she currently has already but you know in general from our own calculations that we've done over and over again it costs like between 25 to 30,000 dollars just for childcare annually I mean that's somebody's salary just to put your kid like if if you're not lucky like me I have my mom taking care of my baby and I pay her you know a small amount of money each month um but I and I don't have to put my kid in into daycare so if you live close by to family or close friends I know some of my my friends who who are moms they would split the cost of daycare with other moms and they'll just hire nanny and <laughs> the nanny will come to one person's house and take care of the kid um they pay him under the table cash right an unlicensed nanny um so that that's some of the more extreme situations that I've seen. It's expensive to have a child here, in, in the United States at least. So just uh, you, you really got to outline every single line item and prepare for that financial responsibility if that's really what you want. Okay. Helen, final question. Oh, boy. <laughs> What's your most unladylike money advice? Mm. I would say do not be afraid to try to get rich. That is my number one money advice. One thing I do see with women particularly is that they don't talk as candidly about 
their income goals as much as when, personally, when I talk to my male counterparts in the industry, um, at, at least. So, yeah, I, that's my number one money advice is to not be afraid to get rich. Mic drop. I love it. <laughs> hey, young ladies, it's Kristen and Caroline from the future. So after this episode came out, we heard from a nanny named Maddie, and she raised some issues that we thought was important to share in this episode. Maddie wrote, Nannies need to be paid over the table with a W-2. All nannies are household employees. This way, if a global pandemic or something else happens, they would qualify for government financial assistance. Paying nannies under the table left a lot of childcare workers in a bind at the beginning of the pandemic. In nanny shares, each family pays two-thirds of a nanny's single child rate. Families split nanny's health care stipend, offer sick time and PTO, just like any other job. And we are all for domestic and caregiving jobs being treated like just any other job. So thank you so much to Maddie for writing into us, calling us in, holding us accountable. And thanks as always to all of you listeners out there who keep us on our toes. Now, on to the credits. Thanks to everyone who sent us your money questions for this Ask Unladylike episode. Y'all can find Helen No on Instagram at meet Helen No, and that's no N-G-O, or head to capitalbenchmarkpartners.com if you want to learn more about her company. If y'all want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. You can also support Kristen and me by joining our Patreon. You'll not only get our undying love, you'll also get ad-free bonus episodes like the one we just recorded on lean-in sexuality and the female orgasm industrial complex. Get it over at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is a senior producer of Unladylike. Michelle O'Brien is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Caroline Irvin. And Kristen Conger of Unladylike Media. Next week... The classic climber party trick is um, doing pull-ups on a doorframe. <laughs> like, I, I think I was at a college party once that was like a bunch of Marines. And they were like, I was like, I bet I, bet I can do more pull-ups than you. And he was like, no way. And I was like, okay, like, do you have a bar? And he's like, no. I was like, cool, we have this doorframe. And he was like, no, that's not, a, like, you can't do pull-ups on that. <laughs> I was oh. like, all right, bet, like, we can. <laughs> and how did, oh, how did he yeah. react? Oh, yeah, he couldn't do one. We're chatting with professional climber Kyra Condi. Kyra tells us about scaling walls, beating the physical odds, and competing at the very first Olympic climbing event. You don't want to miss this episode, so make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Get rich. So that was the catalyst for me to branch out on my own. 
Um, but the back backstory is I got really tired of working for the man. <laughs> <laughs> Stitcher. 